Welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. I'm your host, Scott Brady, and I'm here with my co-host, Ashley Giordano. Hello. And her friend, companion, partner, husband. All the things. Richard Giordano. We are going to talk today about the principles of overlanding South America. It has certainly become one of the most popular international destinations for overland travels. And there is a million reasons for that. And there are very few reasons not to go. But we're going to talk through all of that today. We're going to do the deep dive into places to visit, logistics, and our experiences as a group traveling down to South America in various times. It's just a wonderful place to travel. So kind of give the audience a little overview of what you guys did. This was your first big trip was to South America. And special thanks to 303 Stable for supporting the Overland Journal podcast. Rock crawling, incredible views, and real people with a drive to leave the world better than they found it. It's all in a new documentary presented by 303 and Stable. From the ground up, Keeping the Desert Clean tells the story of an Arizona nonprofit tackling the massive problems of illegal dumping on public lands. Watch and learn how a hobby can turn into a movement brought to you by brands driven to protect and preserve the things you love from the ground up keeping the desert clean is available now on youtube search 303 products and subscribe today how did you get there yeah. So we left from Vancouver, BC in our 1990 Toyota pickup and we drove down through Mexico and Central America. And then we shipped from Panama to Colombia. And then we actually went down the west side of South America through Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, Bolivia, Argentina, and then Chile, and then Argentina and Chile and Argentina and Chile back and forth. Yeah. And then we obviously made it to Ushuaia and back up to Buenos Aires and then shipped to the U.S. from there. One of the most common questions that I get is Central America versus South America. So we'll talk about that in a little bit. I did something similar, but over a few different trips. So I, in 2009, I drove down to the Darien Gap and then shipped my vehicle back to the United States from there. And then over a series of trips, uh, Colombia and all the way down to Ushuaia on a combination of motorcycles and four-wheel drives. Part of Expedition 7 was coming into Argentina and driving all the way down to Ushuaia. And then I drove the Land Cruisers across the continent from east to west and then up to Lima. And then ultimately I kind of completed the drive all the way back to Colombia, but on a motorcycle. And I did that on a BMW GS, which was incredible journey, much of which I did solo. So it was my first real long distance solo travel as well. So South America is very, very special. So let's dig into that first question of traveling in Central America versus traveling in South America. I could not have found them to be more different. My experience was that Central American countries, even though they are very different, and I don't want to at all suggest that they are not different cultures because they are, but they are more similar than they are different. And a lot of the terrain and the geography and the geology of the area is very similar as well. Heavily jungled, pretty much stays the same all the way until you get to the Darien Gap of Panama. Now, South America, the cultures are more distinct from country to country, and the geography and geology is very different oftentimes from country to country. What did you guys find? 
find the differences between traveling through Central America and South America. All right, I'll go first. Again, huge differences between the two. I think it's it's hard because South America, you have these countries that are so huge in comparison. Sure. That, you know, I don't actually know the facts, but Colombia would most likely take over most of for a big chunk of Central America. It would. So of course it's going to have huge differences in landscapes. And as those landscapes change, I, we noticed it from the coast to the mountains, cultures changed. Right. With South America being so huge, it was really cool as we drove south that, you know, you got to see each of those cultures and each of the landscapes change constantly. Yeah. And they're all yeah. convinced that they have the best barbecue. <laughs> and that they all do. The, that was the thing yeah. that was really funny. If you dared suggest to a Chilean that Argentine barbecue was better in a friendly way, want to string you up with a smile on their face, they would string you up. Yeah. And then I would suspect that the Brazilians have a strong opinion about their barbecue versus the Argentine barbecue. But the good thing about um, that is a gluttony of choice. So literally a gluttony of choice is that there's great barbecue all throughout South America, whereas you don't generally find that. You don't find great food in Central America. It doesn't mean that you can't find restaurants that have wonderful food and have exceptional experiences. But in general, South America consistently has a lot more variety of food, a lot more options around that, and a lot more distinct cuisine from country to country as well. For sure. I feel like Central America was a lot of rice and beans yep. and Some like a chicken. pico, which was delicious. But yeah, it was very similar. Yeah. And then yeah. we also found, or just from talking to other travelers, the ones who loved surfing loved Central America. Oh, that makes oh, sense. Yeah. And because you've got the you've got the perfect place to just that makes paddle sense. out every morning, surf come back, eat your rice and beans, go back out again. Yeah. Whereas the beach life, everybody who likes the beach life really likes Central America. Yeah. And then we're from Canada. So the hot, humid temperatures <laughs> for non-surfers. I'm melting. Exactly. <laughs> really pushed us into South America. And as soon as we made our way into the Andes and we're able to start hiking and trekking, it, uh, it really came to life for us, for sure. So, so that's really good feedback. And that's interesting perspective because I, I don't surf. I would love to learn at some point in my life, but I don't surf. And so that makes sense. If you really want to be on the beach and you really love that kind of hot, humid, jungly terrain, then Central America is going to be super rewarding because there's so much great beachfront camping and mm -hmm. places to explore there. That's interesting. Someone who really wants to go surfing should maybe make Central America a higher priority. Whereas for me, those big landscapes and that really remote terrain and the huge variability of geography and geology. Wildlife. Wildlife, yeah. I felt like we could get out into the wild a little more easily in South America. Yeah. Like we could find really beautiful, epic campsites more easily. I mm -hmm. felt a little more restricted in Central America in terms of wild camping. For sure. It's more populated because the size of the area is smaller. That's true. I did find some good wild camping in Nicaragua, even in Honduras, we did find some. And then uh, certainly in Belize, there was quite a bit mm. in Belize. Uh, but again, like you're able to camp right on the beach was really special. And then Central America also has the challenges geopolitically. Nicaragua, when I traveled through there, was extremely safe. And now they've had a lot more turmoil. And it doesn't mean that you can't go there. But when I was there, Honduras was the hot spot. I remember, and I've used this trick a bunch of times in my travels, but when you feel really unfamiliar with a place, the best guide that you have through a city is a taxi driver and you can really incentivize them. They're entrepreneurs. They are. All of them are. And they have an entrepreneurial mindset. We grabbed one on the north side of Tegucigalpa. I gave them 10 bucks, 10 US dollars. And I said, there's 20 more when you get us to the other 
side. There was no way in hell he was going to let us get lost or separated. We also asked him if he could get us to a grocery store. He got us to the best grocery store in town and he watched our vehicles while we perfect. Wow. He was perfect. And it made a huge difference for us being able to get through the city because the route that I thought I needed to take through the city was not the one that he took us through. And the one he took us through was much better. It was bigger roads. You could tell a lot more infrastructure traffic moved through their trucks and things like that because we had a large earth roamer in our group. So having someone that was intimately familiar with driving through that city ended up being a huge benefit. That's Great. awesome. It's cheap $30. Totally. Yeah. When you have a big group of people yeah. um, and we made his day, he totally made our day. So it was a win for everybody involved. I think it's good to think of those areas that you might feel a little bit apprehensive about in a different way. Like, you know, I think a lot of travelers skip through Honduras and do the, is it a double border crossing in one day? That's right. Which is, I, I'm not like criticizing that decision because I think it's good for some people and for some people it doesn't work out that way. But I think for us, we decided, well, Honduras is kind of like the, it has a certain reputation and we wanted to dig into it a bit. So we decided to volunteer there. And that was a really cool way of seeing on the ground kind of what was going on in an area we wouldn't normally go to. Tell me about that experience. Yeah. Where did you volunteer and what kind of volunteer work did you do? We volunteered with a company called the Honduras Child Alliance. And it was really cool. We put together a photography class for some kids. That was a lot of fun. So we did a camera drive back home. So we had all these digital cameras that we brought down with us. Sure. (laughs) Like a big Tupperware container full of stuff. Yeah. We just were in the classroom with them. I guess you, Richard, probably could talk about that a little bit better about like the itinerary and the area we went to. I can't remember the name of it. El Porvenir, I think was the Yeah, was the El village. Porvenir. Yeah. Yeah. So it was great because the kids normally had school half the day and then the other half the day they were either going home or they had to find something else to do, whatever it was. We took that other half of the day and we did a photography scavenger hunt and awesome. kind of like went through some basics of photography, like very, very basic. And the kids just ran around, took photos of all the things that were on their list, came back, they were sharing with their friends. Mm-hmm. I think in the end, they all went for a ride in the truck because a lot, not, yeah. not a lot of them had, had been in a vehicle before. So took them for a ride around town in the pickup. Yeah, we had a, we had a great time. I think we were in, we were there for a few days and in Honduras for, you know, two or three weeks or something. Yeah, it was really interesting. There was one kid and he was a little bit of a, he was like the, the bad, bad kid in yeah, the sure. class, kind of disruptive and the rebel. Yeah. But it was funny by the end of it because he was the one that really like was really sad to see us go and, and really kind of let down his, his front, I guess, at the end of the experience and really like had a good time and had a lot of fun riding in the truck. And we just didn't realize that some of the kids in that area had never been in a motorized vehicle like that before. Sure. And so that was like the first time riding in a truck. And so we were like, wow, that's that really blew our mind. So it was a special, special experience for us, for sure. Yeah. yeah what a, what a super cool experience. And that was similar to what we did. We came in through Belize into Guatemala and did some really remote stuff out there, some real remote jungle treks. And then we went into Copan city. So we took that other border in the North, kind of the Northeast of Honduras. And that was really cool because the ruins are, yeah, Yeah. that's right. The Copan city and Copan ruins. And, and we got a chance to just really hang out in that area and take our time. And we had no troubles in Honduras at all. Nothing to speak of. So a lot of times these experiences are, they overshadow what is really a wonderful place. uh, Because if one traveler has trouble, 
available, then it, it kind of spreads like wildfire. Right. That's an issue. All it takes is one, one story. Correct. Mm-hmm. And if you think about the number of people that are carjacked daily in Los Angeles, why would we ever go? But it's because Los Angeles is another North American city that we're all familiar with and we've been there and it doesn't feel that dangerous, even though it can be. When we're doing research on visiting an all new place and we're a little bit apprehensive to begin with, those stories can really percolate to the yeah. top. Yeah. And especially when you're planning from home and you don't have any control of the situation because you're not even in the situation yet. Sure. Yeah. I feel like as soon as we're we're somewhere on the ground and something's happening. And you different. tell a story at, the, at home, like when we were in Jordan, when we were in the middle of a riot, like beginning of a protest for, um, they had a fuel price increase. And I'm walking around with my lonely planet in my hand and my backpack <laughs> on. And all of a sudden I stop seeing women and children. And yeah, I start seeing- the first sign. And I start seeing men with face coverings on. And I thought, maybe we should leave now. <laughs> yeah. I don't think this is the right spot. Yeah. And that's one of the guys on the side of the road said, I think you guys are in the wrong place. Yeah. So we hopped in a taxi and, and left. You know, if you tell that story to somebody else back home and- they seem sounds sketchy. Can't believe we got into that situation. But when we were there, no big deal. Hop in a taxi. We're gone. We can solve yeah. that situation. Two, when we were researching Central America and planning for the trip, I think two of the requirements were a white sheet and traffic triangles. And we were like, why do we need a white sheet? And we brought one and we brought the traffic triangles and we didn't need either one of them. I think the idea was that the cops would pull you over and be like, do you have your white sheet? And I don't know if it was for like a body or what. <laughs> we never needed any of it. So I don't know. Yeah. Well, the, yeah, the triangle, I think it's just like a traffic thing. Like totally. you got to have some reflective tape on your back, you know, yeah. those old things that gives them an excuse maybe to pull you over. But I, I remember I was in Nicaragua, I think, or no, it was in Costa Rica. We were camped out on this lake and these cops pull up and they're, I speak some Spanish sufficient for travel for sure, but not, I'm not fluent. And these two police officers are say, they started saying to me, el cuerpo en el bolsa. And I'm thinking, Ooh. a cuerpo is a, that's a body. <laughs> yeah. And I think a bolsa is a bag or a purse, right? And I'm yeah. thinking, oh, like, do we have, do we, have we seen a body bag? Do we have a body bag? <laughs> and then finally, after some translation, you know, it's back and forth, I was able to understand that they were looking for a body. What it had been, it was, it was like a domestic violence thing. It was, they think someone had been killed and thrown into the lake. Gotcha. <laughs> so it didn't make the place any more dangerous than any other city where violence happens, but it was really interesting and they were super cool about it and everything was really fine. And, and again, my experiences in Central America were really wonderful. Wonderful. But South America is certainly a gem and that's what we're going to get into now. When you guys shipped from Panama to Colombia, how did you do that? So we shipped by container and it was just through word of mouth. I think it was, is it Taya? I can't remember what her name was. Yeah. Yeah. There was a, there were two agents that people were really using at that time. And one of them was Tia, I think her name was. And I believe we found her on maybe the Pan American Highway Facebook group. Yeah. Pan America the Travelers. Right. That was a really good place to find shipping partner. We found our shipping partner on that. On so that you guys grabbed a 40 footer and you put two vehicles in it. Yeah. Yep. Got it. Cool. And uh, yeah, the agent a lot of money. care of most of it. I think the only difficulty we had was that it was, it was around Samana Santa or something, I believe when we were shipping. So around the holidays. And of course, when we went to go bring the, the vehicles to the port to put them in the container, they didn't have a container at the time or something. So we had to drop off the truck and just hand off the keys and just hope for the best. It was fine. Truck ended up in a container and, and uh, eventually in South America. Yeah. It was easier than we expected. I think when you hear about shipping from Panama to Colombia, you're like, oh, this is like this big deal and it's so stressful and all these things can go wrong. And I don't know if maybe that was actually happening before we shipped, but we found it was a lot easier than we expected it to be. 
Panama was totally squared away. We didn't use a fixer in Panama. In hindsight, I probably would do that now, but I wanted to learn. So going down to the police station to get the yeah, temporary import yep. mm-hmm. uh, canceled and all of those things, that was all a really great experience. But the port in Panama is just squared away. It's like brand new, tidy. And we did the same thing. We threw them the keys to the car because we were doing roll on, roll off. So the nice. vehicles, so we just literally just like throw them your keys and, and then it showed up in Houston you know, a couple months later so, yeah. or a month later or something like that. So. Yeah. I feel like you're, it always feels like a little bit of a gamble when you're handing off the keys and you're hoping for the best. Yeah. Yeah. And glad that the truck was worth $10,000 and not $110,000 or, or more. And the other thing that was funny was there was a big rainstorm before we packed a truck up to put it on the ship into the shipping container. And so some of our bedding was like slightly damp, you know, how humid it is oh, there. Sure. And it just like baked in there. It was totally moldy when we opened yeah. it up on the other side. It was so nasty. Yeah, it's just like an oven in the shipping container. <laughs> oh, totally. But it's it's not a super big deal to do that. There's plenty of, of agents. There's a lot of shipping traffic that goes through Panama. Hmm. They've got it sorted. If you can find a kind of a trusted resource like you guys did, that makes a huge difference, I think, as well. And then I know that a lot of motorcyclists are using boats and sailboats yep. to, to ship down there, which I think would be a really neat experience with my love for sailing. How fun would that be to just kind of keep the adventure going on a sailboat over a couple yeah. days to Columbia? Yeah. And I think that Overland Embassy in Panama is yeah, now facilitating shipping back and forth between Colombia as are. well. Yeah. It's like a couple of Overlanders and they started up a Overland Embassy in yeah. Panama. And I believe so. it's a hostel and yeah. he'll actually mm-hmm. track down vehicles for you in Panama if you're looking to buy Hilux or Troopy. Or- gotcha. Sure. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. Well, that was uh, Christian Pelletier, who we both, who we all know. He did that for a while. Panama Passage was the name of that one. Gotcha. And Matt Scott, who's the, another co-host of this podcast, he actually worked at at Panama Passage. So he, he was responsible for setting up shipping and everything awesome. for everybody. So it is awesome. The shipping is definitely not something to be concerned about too much. There can be costs that come into it that can be a surprise. When we ship the land cruisers from Africa over to South America, we ship them into Buenos Aires, which I would not do again because I did find it to be pretty rife with bureaucracy mm-hmm. and, and it's close cousin. We were a little bit on a time crunch because the boat had been delayed more than we expected. When you have a large group of people, if you want to expedite, it just costs a lot of money. Otherwise, but if you've got six, seven people eating in hotels, you can add that money up very, very quickly. Sure. And so to expedite those vehicles out was a bit of a challenge. Yeah. I think for us, for shipping the truck from Panama to Colombia, it was all in with something like 15 or $1,600 plus plus flights to Cartagena. Yeah. What was that like 2015? Yeah, I believe. And then actually shipping from Buenos Aires to Jacksonville. (laughs) Yeah. That was seemingly more stressful and annoying. Yeah, definitely more stressful <laughs> trying to get a truck out of Jacksonville than it was out of uh, Cartagena for yeah. sure. Interesting. Or even more difficult than getting it shipped out of Buenos Aires. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We were stuck there for a while. We, we were stuck in Florida for three weeks when the truck was stuck in port. Just yeah. lots of, lo- lots of little problems. <laughs> but there are other shipping routes too. I think a lot of people ship to Veracruz. That's right. So. Yeah. They're learning what's good and where the bureaucracy is a little bit more consistent. Mm-hmm. People are shipping into Valparaiso in Chile as well, which I believe is a problem around right-hand drives, which is why we did not do that. It, that may have been resolved. The last that I checked, it was an issue shipping right-hand drives into Chile. So if those that are listening, that might become a little bit of an issue. But the shipping thing is it's just part of the deal. You got to ship from somewhere to get there 
because there's no way there's very limited options in getting through the Darien Gap currently. Right. That, that will certainly change at least within our lifetime, but uh, which I'm excited about at some point. And they did have a, they did actually had a ferry. Mm-hmm. They, had a, they had a ferry many years ago and then they just a few years ago, they tried it again and I think it only made it a couple months and then they only did motorcycles for a couple more months after that and then it was done. Yeah, it was a great idea. We thought we were going to be able to get on the ferry. But we almost did and then, yeah, it stopped we, running. Yes. Yeah, like few, right at that time when two, we were trying yeah, to Yeah, two or, two or three weeks before we got there, it was like, done. <laughs> oh, what so, a bummer. So close. Yeah. yeah. But I think with the shipping, it was like originally our plan was to drive to Panama and back because we thought the shipping logistics were going to be way too difficult. We thought it was going to cost way too much money. Yeah. But then once you start talking to more and more people who have done it and you gather the information, it becomes a lot less scary, a lot less overwhelming. And you just make a list of things you need to do and start checking them off. And yep. all of a sudden your truck's on another continent. That's right. Yep. That's right. Rarely do you hear the stories of like where they don't work it out. Like it just takes, Mm -hmm. sometimes it just takes time and just takes some patience. And that's the biggest thing is patience. Those people are working hard every day too. This is their job. Some of them are in a position of authority that's very respected within their country. And as a result, they kind of are going to expect that from us as travelers as Mm -hmm. well. So we have to remember that in some countries, someone that's in the port authority would be viewed as someone with a lot of influence. We want to make sure that when we're interacting with those folks that we're asking about their day, asking about their family, maybe you show up with a coffee or you do something that shows some deference to their position of authority and being respectful, having a smile on your face, not being entitled for something to work as efficiently as we may be used to in the country that we currently live in. So, and even in, in any country, there can be problems and loss efficiencies and all that, but recognizing that we don't have control over the situation. So to let it go a little bit and just kind of soak up that whole experience. Isn't that why we did it to begin with. Yeah, We right. wanted to go experience something totally different and new and maybe difficult when it starts to happen. Let's just remind ourselves that that's why we did it. That's why we left to begin with. Yes. So take those, uh, what are they, the North American goggles off for, yeah. for a short while. Yeah, <laughs> to- totally. And, and, and sometimes you just have to go in and trust what's happening, even though it doesn't feel comfortable all the time, such as when you're emailing somebody you've never talked to on the phone and they're telling you to go to a bank and here's a number, like a a bank account number to deposit your $2,500 for shipping in US funds. And you just go down to the bank in the middle of the city and (laughs) in Panama and you're depositing these funds and crossing your fingers and hoping for the best. Totally. It's fun. It's so fun. (laughs) Yeah. It's just amazing. Let's talk a little bit about the cultures of these countries in in South America. We've not, all three of us have not been to every country in South America. So we'll talk about the ones and they're also the most common ones that people travel through as well. I've spent a lot of time in Colombia. It's one of the countries in South America that I love the most. And a lot of that may be influenced by the fact that I have good friends there. So Micho Escobar with Elephant Moto Company, he's down there and I've done a lot of traveling with him and he's just someone that I adore. So because I get to travel around his country with him, I've had these really wonderful experiences because of that. Um, Whereas I've traveled in a lot of other countries just on my own and I don't have that same connection to the place. In Colombia's defense, I think it is very special. So what'd you guys think of Colombia? We enjoyed it a lot. Yeah. One thing we noticed that was really interesting was the pace of speech in the mountains versus the oh, coast. Sure. Which we, I think we experienced that elsewhere, but it was really pronounced there. Like on the coast, it was very, very fast and like a lot of slang. And then in the mountains, it was a lot slower and we could understand it a little bit more. And it was almost more like the Spanish in Mexico that we kind of knew mm-hmm. and certain words had changed when we came over. So we were calling our tent 
like a tienda throughout Central. And then in South America, a tienda was like a little shop. And so everybody's like, what are you talking about a shop on your truck? I don't understand. Are <laughs> you selling yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so those language differences were really, really interesting. And they did definitely continue to change as we moved south, which was interesting sure. to try to like keep up with all the it, changes. It changes a lot. It yeah. changes a lot. There are several routes in Colombia that I think are very much worth exploring. There's the Tatacoa Peninsula mm-hmm. in the north, which I've not been to, but a lot of people have had great experiences in. One of the ones that I really enjoyed, it was a trip that I did with Micho and Sinway Xavier, who's been on the podcast, but we went out towards the border of Venezuela. We went through Los Llanos, which is their kind of their big grasslands. And it was just very remote. You could easily camp out there. It felt like a, like you were driving through Africa. It didn't feel like you feel like you were riding through, through a, a South American country. Um, but then in the South, you've got the Colombian death road. Did you guys do that? We did not. No. My closest near death experience on the Colombian death road was actually uh, another overlander with Idaho plates that were coming the other direction. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like working my way around this corner, which would mean like imminent death. And they, of course they're, they're trying to go up the hill and maintain speed in this big full-size Ford truck with a camper on the top. And they come flying around the corner. I'm skidding to a stop, like in the loamy soil at the edge. His eyes are as big around as saucers. And then, and then, and then he hears me say, whoa, whoa, whoa. And he's like, what? And I said, I said, you almost ran me off the road, like in perfect, in like in English. And he's like, oh man, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like these two Americans, like trying not to kill each other on the Colombian death road. So, yeah, it was fantastic. And then there's a, oh, maybe I, I said the peninsula wrong. It's, did I say the Tatacoa? You did, yeah. but you meant yeah. El Guajira. Yeah. El Guajira. La Guajira. La Guajira Peninsula. So the Tatacoa is a desert in the South. Yeah. And that is, it's like Arizona. Yeah. It's amazing. And it's very fun to ride in. It's very fun to drive in. Did you guys go there? We did. We did. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the Tatacoa Desert. Yeah. We loved El Kakui. Yeah. El Kakui National Park was. Oh man. It was beautiful. Yeah. It reminded me of some of the hikes that we do in the Rockies, except that we were the only ones on the trail and yeah. for hours, mm. seven, eight, nine hour hikes. Interesting storms, I think, when we were up yes. at the top. And high elevation. We felt the elevation for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the Andes like splits in that area. Another thing that I noticed about Columbia, because when I travel, I really do enjoy the cities. Uh, the cities were were awesome in their own way. It felt very safe to me. Again, you talked about women and children out and about earlier, yep. Richard, and and you could be two o'clock in the morning and there's kids, you know, eating corn on the cob. <laughs> two in the morning, one in the morning, there's just families out and about and people are jogging through the parks. This was Bogota. I've, I experienced the same thing in Medellin. I've spent time um, in Cartagena, but I was actually a little bit out of Cartagena with some folks that I knew up there. But just a really special spot. So yeah, very cool. The cities are great. Yes. Mm -hmm. I think the street food in Colombia was was really good and the music. And I just remember walking around at night, like you were saying, the nightlife there is really vibrant. And uh, what is that movie? Romancing the stone. We like (laughs) saw this one area. I think that they filmed in Cartagena or a couple different areas on the water that were (laughs) in that movie with uh, Michael Douglas. And I can't remember the actress's name anyways, but yeah, it was, really, really hot there. Like really, really, really probably yeah. the hottest part of our trip. I think it was 45 degrees Celsius when we were there. Oh, that's yeah, hot. It was hot. Really, really that's hot. hot. Yeah, perfect for 
us in a truck with no air conditioning. (laughs) (laughs) But that's another thing that's so great about the Colombian cities that they build them a little higher up in elevation. So Bogota just has great weather. It's, it can rain there for sure, but for the most part, every day is very comfortable and it's a motorcycle city. I mean, there's people ride motorcycles, locals ride motorcycles and, and it's just, it's a fairly easy place to ride a bike around, which I thought was really great too. You can have a great hotel. You can go to a great meal if you want fantastic restaurants. Mm -hmm. Columbia, I know is not on a lot of people's lists, but it is nothing like you think about Columbia from the eighties. This is a vibrant, very safe, very progressive, very cool place in the world in my mind. Yeah, I agree. It was really funny when we were going there and my dad kept being like, are you going to Columbia? Um, (laughs) Are you sure you're going to Columbia? And I'm like, I don't understand why this is a problem. Like it seems completely fine. And then we watched Narcos, I think, you know, when it came out and I'm like, (laughs) oh, I see why he was concerned because he lived through all that time period. Whereas we were going with no preconceived notions (laughs) whatsoever. Well, and I think it was not all that long ago that they finally rounded up all of Escobar's like he had a bunch of like African animals that were running oh, yeah. around like oh, hippopot- yeah. like oh, hippopotamus in the river and stuff. Oh. They finally found, they finally ra- rounded them all up. Yeah. You can still go to his old property. I think Yeah, I regret not doing that after learning about it yeah. a year after we had been there. But. Yeah. So Columbia is very special and it's also quite easy to just have a fly in drive or a fly and ride experience there. Mm. Um, adventure motorcyclists have been doing it for a long time and you can go in and you can rent a Fortuner or a Hilux or all these cool vehicles we've always wanted to have. You can rent those things in Colombia and go to ha- have your own experience. And we spent, cool. a, we spent a month there and it didn't feel like we were rushed. Um, I think it was a good amount of time. So if yeah. you had, if you had two, three, four weeks to go explore, yeah. you can see a lot of the country. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. It's a very cool spot. Just to the east of there is Venezuela, which I had planned to go into, but the borders were all shut and they were only doing limited humanitarian aid and other things across the Colombian border into Venezuela. So Venezuela currently is a little more difficult to travel into. And I've tried a few times to go there. The first time they denied my visa because I was prior military. And then the second time the borders were closed. So I've made some attempts and I would love to go there because it is very much an overlanding culture there. They love their mm-hmm. vehicles and they love to camp and they love to go explore in the jungles and in their grasslands and everything like that. And they're just, we all know so many wonderful Venezuelans that that are now travelers or or have left the country and they're just beautiful people. So hopefully someday we'll all be able to talk about that. Yeah. yeah. And I, I felt like we got a little taste of Venezuela when we were in Panama because we spent days, a week with a huge, huge group of Venezuelans that were, that took us in like family, brought us mm-hmm. to the Panama Canal. We worked on our truck because we had to go do a couple, couple of things to the truck and went over to their place for it was a birthday dinner of some sort. I don't know. They just invited us in and we had a really good amazing, time. Amazing time. Yeah. Lots and lots of Venezuelans in Panama for sure. Yeah. And it's just a really important reminder for us and for those that are listening that, that the people of a country are so different than the bureaucracy or the, mm-hmm. or the people that are in charge. People are generally good and governments are generally in some degree of screwed up. So mm-hmm. that's fair. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's universal. Mm-hmm. So then if we go a little South from there, we go into Ecuador. Mm-hmm. What'd you guys think of Ecuador? We really like Total surprise Ecuador. for me too. Yeah. yeah. The border crossing was so easy. We didn't even realize that we had completed it. <laughs> and then the roads were paved perfectly because I guess they have was it Chinese money coming in for the roads there so they were all like pristine and I remember one of the first drives we did coming into it was Finca Summerwind in uh whatever 
What was that town? I can't remember. Uh, Ibarca. Ibarra. Ibarra. Anyway, there were like quinoa plants all along the, the road and all the flowers, flowery, totally. blooming, and it was really beautiful. And so. a motorcycle track across from the campground as well. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like the, What year, what time of year were you in Ecuador? Do you remember? Um, we were there June. in 2015. Was it June or so? Yeah, I think so. Something like that. Yeah. So your guys' trip was literally right between, I got done in 2014 with Ushuaia and then I went back there in 2016. So you guys were literally there right between me, but yeah, the Ecuador experience was total surprise. What were your favorite part? And what surprised you? Well, there was a couple things that surprised me. The it's, it's very easy to be a tourist there. They actually have quite a bit of tourism infrastructure and they have a lot to see. For example, you know, if you want to go have a coffee experience, there are places where you can go and see the whole process of how they make coffee and how they pick the beans. And like I went to an organic coffee farm where it's fair trade and the people are paid a living wage and all of those other things. It was elevated up on this, on this ridgeline, just like sipping a cappuccino that was made with the beans that were growing right <laughs> down below me. That was a very special experience. There's a fairly rich adventure motorcycle culture there as well. We were able to, when I was there with Expedition 65, we were able to interact with a bunch of the locals and go and see their country and their overland routes that they take mm. uh, between these colonial villages and some rough and rugged tracks, which were really fun. And then of course it uses the dollar, which is, which makes it very easy mm-hmm. to kind of understand how thing what things cost. And it, yeah, it was, it's just very easy. It was the easiest place for me to ride around solo because I went down through Ecuador with the group and then I left them in Peru and rode back over some time by myself. So I was just all alone and it was a very easy, easy place to do that. Nice. Super friendly people, very easy to travel in. So nice. Free national parks. Yeah. You can stay All for seven parks. or 14 days. All the volcanoes were probably Incredible. the highlights. Some of the highlights of our whole trip, actually. Yeah. Cotopaxi and Chimborazo. Trying to drive around Cotopaxi, getting stuck, it erupting, having to, <laughs> having to get out of there really quick. Yeah. Cotopaxi, there's great overland routes around there. I mean, I've got photos of adventure motorcycles with Cotopaxi in the background and it's all snow capped and stunning, cool. stunning mountain. Jeez. It's not as easy to drive around as you may, uh, may have been told, but, uh, I didn't drive, I didn't drive drive around around it. I didn't drive around it. We drove, (laughs) we drove on the, what would be the West side of it. Yeah. It's pretty. Yeah. And it was all back roads. It was all two tracks, Jeep tracks and stuff like that, but it was, it was totally doable. Yeah. We didn't try to ride around it. Yeah. Uh, some fellow overlander told us that we could drive around it, which I believe they actually mixed it up with the other volcano. And, uh, we had quite an interesting experience trying to drive around and then getting locked out Sure, because there was a gate at the border of the the national National park. Park. So we went out and then we were in who knows where, and then we realized there's no road to drive around the volcano. So we started coming back and the gate was completely locked. Oh no. And we couldn't get around it at all because there was like basically dirt on either side. So we couldn't even scramble over it. And so we just like hung out there until a taxi came eventually a few hours later. It felt like we were were in the absolute middle of nowhere, especially when you're locked out. And then all of a sudden this dude in a taxi rolls (laughs) up with a key. And you're in low range, (laughs) hubs locked. Yeah, Yeah, we're getting serious. Got your in reach, ping in every five minutes. And then here comes a taxi driver. (laughs) Yeah, he's got a two wheel drive, a Zuzu truck. (laughs) Totally. Uh, It's so good. I love those. I love those interactions because it just like brings you back. It's yeah. like, oh, it's like, no, I'm not actually Indiana Jones today. Yeah. I'm just like 
hanging out with the taxi driver. Exactly. Yeah. And but we're like, where is he going? Because there's like nothing out there. <laughs> I don't know what he was it doing. Was pretty great. But he wouldn't I leave us it. afterwards. We went all the way back to the lodge. And every time he was getting a little too far away, he would slow down because he did not trust that we knew where we were going. <laughs> <laughs> but how sweet is that? Though? Exactly. Just so lovely. Yeah. Ecuador is lovely. That's a great way to describe it. And there's a lot to see a lot of national parks. They've been very thoughtful about how they've developed their country for tourism and industry and agriculture. And it's a really a special spot. Mm-hmm. Total surprise for lots me. Of, lots of history in the, in the cities. Quito, right? Yep. Yeah. So yeah, go do it. Just go do it. Ice, <laughs> yeah, totally. ice cream's really good there. It is. <laughs> they're totally into the ice cream. Yeah. they're to- And you can get it at every gas station, which is a problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, oh, I haven't tried this version of the Magna or whatever. Yeah. It is. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is chocolate <laughs> with double chocolate, chocolate crunch. Whatever. <laughs> well worth yeah, it. Yeah, totally. And a special thanks to Red Arc for supporting this podcast. Looking to upgrade your solar setup or get your adventure rig ready for summer? Red Arc is proud to announce their new foldable solar blankets available in 160 watts, 240 watts, and even 300 watts of power output. These monocrystalline blankets allow maximum energy absorption even without direct sunlight. Paired with genuine Anderson connectors for easy and reliable connectivity. Also available as a kit including necessary cables and a solar regulator for a turnkey solution for those beginning their solar journey. Red Arc's new monocrystalline folding solar blanket panels and accessories are perfect for complementing their existing line of fixed folding and solar blankets. For the ultimate off-grid power setup, pair RedArc's new solar panels with their already popular range of dual in-vehicle or battery management systems. Featuring next-generation battery charging technology and maximum power point tracking solar regulators, eliminating the need for a second regulator. And with built-in green power priority, it will select solar charging first, which means less of a load on your alternator. RedArc's line of solar products have been torture tested in the rugged Australian outback and specifically designed for backcountry use where efficiency, durability, and reliability are key to having an enjoyable and safe overland journey. Uh, Probably one of my most fun experiences in Ecuador is this adventure motorcycling group. They got us access to a racetrack. So here we are, we've got all these heavily loaded adventure bikes with knobby tires and everything. They just unleashed us on this road course. So yeah, maybe I can get the clip to Paula of me riding around that thing, banging off the rev limiter on an adventure bike. (laughs) (laughs) Uh What am I doing? Why am I, but I want to go faster. (laughs) No mechanical sympathy on the racetrack. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, oh, cool. Out of Colombia and, or excuse me, out of Ecuador and into Peru. Now, favorites. Now Peru is interesting on the on the border side of things. So this is, and they may have improved this slightly, but they're pretty locked down around your documentation. Mm-hmm. So I ran into trouble twice. So from the South coming North with the E7 trucks, uh, they were all registered to this entity of Expedition 7 out of New Zealand of all places. Yeah. They wanted to have nothing to do with that because the names didn't matter. It didn't matter that we had articles of incorporation, all those things that worked in every other country that we had traveled to, except for that one. So, we actually had to, through a lot of effort, get the vehicles registered in the United States tempor- temporarily mm-hmm. to be able to get through the border. It was uh, We were parked there for a very long time. I've always, on bigger trips, I've always brought a printer, which seems excessive and I hadn't needed it. But that day we needed that printer. You can copy things, you can print things off that come in, you can make it work. They were very good about it. They were not, they had their marching orders. I have Mm -hmm. to say that that's very refreshing. Mm -hmm. And I didn't suggest 
that there was some way that we could resolve the problem. Right. Normally there, they will tell you that there's an option to resolve the problem. They never suggested that, but they were also kind and understanding. And they allowed us to work through the process of getting the documentation that they need that checked off their boxes. Now coming from the North on a motorcycle that I didn't own, that I was renting, Mm -hmm. despite all the letters of authorization and all of those other things, the only thing that worked was I had an issue of Overland Journal and things escalated a little bit where I was asking for someone with a little bit more authority just to have a chat with. And so the kind of the commandante of the border crossing. And I just, I told him how much I love his country. I've been there before and I'm so excited to go back. And and I'm so excited to document my experience of his country in my magazine. (laughs) And I showed him Overland Journal and I flipped through the pages. I showed him my name on the masthead and he says... No problem. <laughs> That's fantastic. So, so that is an example of, you know, maybe some privilege that I had that I was aware of in the time, but maybe I can help others with when you go there, make sure that the documentation that you have matches your passport because they're going to want to make sure that it's your vehicle. You know, they're not open to, to solving the problem for you. You've got to solve it on your own. So make sure that you go into the country. I mean, at the end of the day, he understood like, yeah, this was a rental vehicle. I'm a tourist. I'm trying to, I'm a journalist. I'm trying to, all of the pieces made sense to the guy in charge who could stamp off on it. And he was so excited for me to go to his country, but not everybody will have that option. So it's just making sure you show up with the right documentation. Yeah, for sure. That's happened at a few different border crossings where we haven't, like if, mm-hmm. if we don't have it done correctly in the beginning, if you're patient, yep. eventually you can make it happen. Or maybe you go to a different border crossing <laughs> yeah. and you find a different border guard yep. who may have a little bit more sympathy for you and is willing to take the time and, and kind of right. make it happen for you. So, yeah. And just being flexible and not getting frustrated because if you think about it from their perspective, if they see someone getting agitated and frustrated, how many times do they see that from someone who's up to no good? Like, why are you upset? Why are you now all of a sudden frustrated with me? What are you up to? What are you trying to do here? Whereas if you're the happy tour, you shouldn't be a happy tourist. You're getting to be on vacation, yeah. you know, and be and smile and tell them that you're so grateful for the opportunity to see their country, which we are. And a lot of times that changes the tone. Yeah. A little bit. And we always went really as early as possible in the day, mostly just because it alleviated any stress from us. Things went sideways. You had all day to figure it out. True. As opposed to five minutes before the border closes. And you're trying not to drive at night. So just like reducing the chances of having to drive at night. Yeah. And that's a factor pretty much anywhere in the world, unless you're in a super developed country. Yeah. Any, any trouble I've ever had has happened at night on my travels for sure. Same. Yeah. In fact, that was another thing that happened in Ecuador was tacoing a GS 1200 wheel going into an open manhole cover. Like the, how frightening is oh that? Oh my gosh. Like the car in front of me goes over it and then it's an open hole. And I had a moment to just kind of blip the throttle to take away some of the impact, but you know, pinch flat, flat on the side of the road. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot of work to get a wheel like that fixed. You got to go to the right guy who knows how to, you know, heat them up and reshape them and, and it works but it took a whole day to get it fixed. Yeah. And the only, the major flat we had was, uh, I can't remember what, where we were actually Guatemala. Guatemala. We had this, like, it was a bolt that was a half inch in diameter, six inches long. And it was in one of the transitions to a bridge drove over it. The tire was flat by the time we got to the other side of the bridge. It was middle of the day, but still super busy on, on either side of the road. That was very, very narrow. And I just jammed like seven or eight tire plugs in it and pumped it back up. But if that was at night, it's a whole other, again, totally. whole other story. It yeah. really is. And that's an important thing too, around tires. South America is a big place. It's easy to wear out a set of tires. Yeah. If you're traveling for long periods of time down there and you're really exploring the continent or you started in Canada yeah. mm. and by the time you get down there, you're, you're through a set of tires. So if you think you need 
need to change your tires, get them changed sooner than later. There actually is pretty good infrastructure of aftermarket performance off-road tires in Colombia. You can certainly find them there in some of the really big cities like Santiago, Buenos Aires and stuff. You can find tires like that. So if you're going into that place and you're thinking you might want to change your tires, do it sooner than later because you're not going to find that oversized, that tall, skinny mud tire somewhere. <laughs> you're just not going to find it. No. And I think south of Santiago, it gets harder and harder. It does. So yeah, we swapped tires in Santiago. I think another couple we were traveling, traveling with did the same thing because they had, I think they had 37s on their van, 35s or 37s. And that was, you know, that's kind of the last chance you get to put new tires on the truck. Yeah. It's, and but, Santiago's like, it's super modern, mm-hmm. super safe, all the things, right? Yep. So yeah, very cool. All right. So in Peru, there is a lot of antiquity to see as well. Did you guys make it to Machu Picchu and other places we like did. that? We did. Yeah. Don't forget to bring your passport or they won't let you in. That's right. They check your passport again when you go into the mountain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause we walked, uh, you did the trail. All did the the trail. Up. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. gotta be great. Yeah. That was perfect. We left the uh, passports in a safe place in the truck locked yeah. up. And then also my driver's license, I think, I don't care. We well, left. My driver's license was in the truck, but Richard had his driver's license. Yeah. So we neither get, of us had our passport. So we trek all the way into Aguas Calientes and we take the bus all the way up to, sure. to Machu Picchu. And we, in, we're in the lineup and they ask for the passport. We're like, mm. I yeah. don't know why we didn't know, but. Because we're idiots. I don't yeah, even know why we left know. our passports in the first place. Like, like we <laughs> yeah, always, always keep your passport them. on you at all Always time. on your person. Yeah. <laughs> that whole trip, we were so dumb. We did lots of dumb things. Learned a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was the only time that I lost, almost lost my cool was they were just like, no. And we had a ticket. We had it all printed out. It had all our personal information. At least one of us had our driver's license with our name and it wasn't their fault, but I was just like, dude, we, what are we going to do now? And anyway, we got in, we weren't rude. We were nice, but it was still like Canadian losing cool. Like- <laughs> you stopped smiling. <laughs> <laughs> said said sorry good. twice as much. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, oh, wow. The Canadians just stopped smiling. <laughs> Please enter, enter Machu Picchu. <laughs> but I actually thought that the ruins were really great. They I were loved great. Them, but uh, I, to be honest, I really love the Sacred Valley more. Mm-hmm. I didn't go there. Oh yeah. It's less busy. And I just felt like, I don't know, you feel something a little different there. Yeah. And you have Wonderful. A, yeah. a wide variety of different ruins to see and you just take your time and there are very few tourists. Very, it was fantastic. Yeah. Still the, the stonework and the masonry is just like, Incredible. T- you hear about it when you're a kid and you study history and they talk about how precise the stones are and everything. And you're like, when you see it in person, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Yep. Like I can't get someone to do tile in my house that good. <laughs> Fact. Did you take the train there or how did you get I there? I took the train. Yeah. That's what we should have done. But I really recommend people do cool experience. Well, and if you're, if you're one that's prone to motion sickness, make sure you do what all the things in preparation ah. for the train. Cause it's, it's like crossing the Pacific ocean. It just goes rocks from left to right for Ever. three or four hours. Right. It just rocks back and forth. Good to know. So if you're prone to motion sickness, which people, some people in the group were, yeah, be aware of that, but it's very cool. Super cool experience. Mm -hmm. And yeah, really, really wonderful and a neat little town and, and all of that. Yeah. Did you take it from Cusco or did you take it? Oh yeah. Okay. okay. That was also a really cool town. Yeah. I really liked Cusco. It's just some of those streets and just walking around there with a camera for those that are listening, make sure you always ask permission before you take someone's photograph anywhere in the world. I mean, imagine if you were sitting at breakfast at Wildflower and someone just came up to your table and started <laughs> taking pictures of you and your family, like how you would feel. You'd be like, excuse me. Yeah. So they feel exactly the same way. Make sure when you take photos of others, when we're traveling, that we ask 
permission. And there, I've never had a situation where um, they weren't generous with that. And sometimes they may ask for a little bit of money and that's up to you to choose if you want to, to engage in that commerce with them or not. Yeah. It's just some really beautiful photos of that area. Just stunning. Mm -hmm. I found that lately, if I asked for, asked to take a photo, most of the time the response is that they want to take a photo with me by a selfie. Yeah. Yes. Always a selfie. Which is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. What a trait of experiences. They get to meet someone unique and you get to capture a memory of someone very unique. The Andes through Peru are just really, really special. There are some great overland routes. Just even the paved roads mm-hmm. are one. In fact, it's good that they're paved because it's so beautiful that you're not really paying attention. Yeah. So it's kind of nice that you're on a paved road. Yeah. We loved um, just outside of, is it Juarez mm-hmm. and Caraz? Yeah. That area. There are some really beautiful hikes up there. Like Laguna 69 was one that we loved. And we did the Santa Cruz trek, which was like three days. And and I could have stayed there and hiked forever. Laguna Chirrup as well. Laguna Chirrup, yeah. That area, like I would definitely go back for sure. Yeah. It's just mind blowing. Like you hurt your neck. You're looking up Yeah, the mountains. They're so high. And then if you go over the Andes, uh, which I was able to do into basically you're going, you know, into the jungles of Peru. So you're, you're starting to get into that huge jungle region of the Amazon that borders uh, Brazil. And that's also extremely interesting. It just changes from these high deserty mountains, dried mountains. And then now you're in this, this rain choked area and it's just really incredible. Nice. We did not make it over there. It was so different though. It was so different culturally and it's just a different place and it has a different vibe, a little bit kind of like outposty kind of different spot. People are looking at you a little bit different when you're, when you're over there, like, why are you here? Why are you? (laughs) So it's like you go into a small town in Montana, they look at you the same way. I've seen, I've seen that before. <laughs> Arizona plates, yeah. Albertan plates. No good. It's the same thing, but yeah, it's just, it's just gorgeous. Isn't yeah. it incredible too? You can go into the jungle there or you can be in the Andes or yeah. you can come down towards the water and be in a, like a more desert kind yeah. of environment. Like it's got so much variety there. It's It really does. I found that Lima was a great city too. Lima and yeah. great. If you like food, it's kind of become a foodie town. So great restaurants and they care about cuisine there and they've, they've done a lot of maybe consider a Pisco sour for those that partake mm-hmm. yeah. in libations. So the Pisco sour is like the South American margarita. Yes. I didn't, so I didn't good. think that we spent that much time in Lima, but I do remember walking by a coffee shop and people saying hello to me and using my name. So I must've been there a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But how great is that? It was to fantastic. Like, to dig into the locals and- I miss that. We went uh, rock climbing for the first time there, like on the indoor, on the indoor rock climbing. Yeah. Oh, so fun. I was going to say too, I don't know if you went to Northern Peru in the, like the mountainous side, cause you can kind of cross to the beaches and like sure. surfing. And then there's the mountain region mm. and we just- loved it there. It was so interesting and there were hardly any tourists and it was so culturally rich and all these like old kind of archaeological sites. And Mm -hmm. it was real, like probably one of my favorite parts of the whole Mm -hmm. trip was that Northern section. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I did on the way down with the motorcycle was ducked into the mountains right away to get off of that kind of Pan American mm-hmm. route. I remember I camped at 14,000 feet. So I had a terrible headache mm. Oof. and I was, it was like warm down in the Valley, but like it was so cold. I was the coldest I've ever been camping. Mm. 
like including Antarctica. I was like, cause I was totally unprepared. I had a super lightweight sleeping bag, all lightweight gear. Cause I was on a motorcycle. And I just remember like putting my motorcycle jacket over me and everything that I had on to try to somehow survive the night. But it was just a beautiful ride the next morning. I just dropped down, kept dropping elevation and going through these little villages where they just didn't have tourists. I just found a road on the map and just took it all the way out towards the coast. And I remember I was talking to a, someone in Peru and I stopped at a coffee shop or a restaurant or whatever, telling them where I came from. And they're like, you know, that's where the shining path started. <laughs> so, but I don't know. It's, it felt like I, I mean, they weren't expecting me, I guess. But yeah. Pretty fun. Peru is really neat. And then of course you got Nazca in the South. Did you yeah. guys? Yeah, we did. Did you guys go up in a plane to no. see the? We climbed up a ladder. With <laughs> a tower. <laughs> I, did, I did the same uh, with Kurt and all the, and Greg and everybody from E7. We climbed up the tower. Yeah. More of a tower than a ladder, but um, I thought you could see you could see a lot of the the lines. It yeah. was fascinating yeah. to think about how they produced those so long ago and yeah. so so intricate how they did that. Yeah. I felt like every day there was something so special in Peru. Yes. And yeah, just constantly mind blowing. It was fun. Yeah, Peru, Peru overall, a lot of diversity in terrain Mm -hmm. and some very ancient cultures that are still in many ways intact. Mm -hmm. You guys probably felt like giants in certain places when you're walking (laughs) on the. (laughs) I I am five foot eight. (laughs) Well, but I mean, like some of the shortest people I've seen in my life were Mm -hmm. there. It's a combination of the altitude and all of those other things. And they they can be very, very tiny people, which is such an interesting experience to come across. So I I was thinking even just as you're driving into Lima, discrepancy between the outskirts of Lima Mm -hmm. and downtown is crazy. Like all you have to do is get a few blocks from the water and all of a sudden there's a mall on the waterfront with a Audi dealer and a Porsche dealer. Totally. Open air store. The discrepancy between wealth, I guess there is very shocking. That seems to be fairly consistent in South America with the exception of Chile. Chile's Mm -hmm. got Mm -hmm. a rock and GDP and a healthy middle class and everything. So they also have the lowest corruption rate in all of South America too. So that seems to be some correlation there between equity and corruption. So, all right. So then, yeah, I really like that area. And I did a bunch of dune driving just North of Nazca, huge dunes down there. Had a lot of fun with that. Is that in Paracas? It could have been. Yeah. I'll have to look on the map. Yeah. Sometimes all these trips kind of together. Don't worry. (laughs) I've said every single city wrong so far. (laughs) I remember part of it, but not 100% sure. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, so everybody forgive us for (laughs) like our enthusiasm isn't dampened, but maybe maybe our memory is is dampened a little bit. Those dunes were great. You can do that. You can get a permit to go drive in the dunes in Peru and they're they're huge dunes and, and really, really amazing. I wonder if they were used for maybe part of the Dakar route down there. Could have been. I would think so. Yeah. Very cool. Now, did you guys go into Bolivia? Oh yeah. Did. And now I haven't been there. So talk to oh. us. About, talk to us about Bolivia. I think that the craziest drivers I've been involved with was, <laughs> is in La Paz. Okay. Saudi Arabia's first and then La Paz, Bolivia, I think is, <laughs> is, a, is a close second. I love Bolivia. So small comparatively, I guess, to a lot of the other countries yeah. in South America, but also so diverse. You know, we started off Copacabana. Anna? Is that what it's called? Yeah, I think so. Like the northern, at the lake, Lake Titicaca. Yep. And then right after crossing, crossing the border, we're immediately on some boat with like a eight horse outboard. And by boat, I mean a raft of sorts. Sure. Uh, that we're throwing the truck on and putting across the river. So that was immediately exciting. An, another exciting thing to do. So Instagram worthy. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That was almost before Instagram started. That's how it started. Was that moment. Was that moment right there. (laughs) And I don't know. I think that 
you've got the obviously the thing that stands out in my mind is the uh, Solari Uni and then the Lagunas were out from yeah. there into Chile as being it felt like that's what we were meant to do in South America. Correct. That 500 kilometer route that's five or six days long. Sure. And I don't know. It was pretty incredible. Yeah. Any goosebumps thinking about it. I know. You know, yeah. you got like these co- brightly colored lakes, orange, blue, flamingos. Yeah. yeah. Pretty insane. It was definitely one of the highlights. And I think Sahama National Park was another really amazing experience too with the volcanoes, you know, snow capped volcanoes and then hot springs and just mm. driving around and like feeling the kind of isolation of the natural world out there was pretty special. And we traveled with friends through Bolivia as well, two American couples actually. And so, yeah, that whole time was just pretty incredible. Yeah. But, <laughs> but especially when you're talking about Sahama National Park with Snowcat Peak in the background, we're in a hot tub with our friends and that's it. A natural hot spring. Natural hot spring. Nobody around. Oh and waking up with, um, I don't know if they were guanacos, you know, there's like sunrise and they're all surrounding your vehicle, like a big herd of them. And you're like, where am I? <laughs> yeah. So great. What is this life? Uh, and, it's and, wonderful. And yeah. also I think Bolivia was, that was the only time we ever had real problem, like vehicle problems. We were, it was with the people we were with some electrical problems here and there. And then intake boot split on a three liter V6 and a forerunner and a fuel pump was having some issues and we're just out there problem solving troubleshooting doing the best we can making it work and getting back into a town so fun though when you get to do that but Mm -hmm. we were pretty we're all pretty confident with what we're doing and having a good time and relaxed and it's pretty fun. I think the fuel is something important to talk oh, about yeah. too, because uh, legally they're not allowed to sell fuel to foreigners there. I don't know if that's the case now. I'm assuming it is, but you know, everything's changed so much uh, in the world and in overland travel. So things are changing all the time. But when we were there, we you can't just like as a foreigner drive up to a fuel station and be like, fill her up. Like you're not allowed to do that. And so we had to be a bit creative in how we got fuel. We were told yeah. I guess in the past, or prior to us being there, what people would do is they take a jerry can or two, walk into the gas station, get it filled up and walk out oh, and fill sure. up their truck. But they also weren't doing that for us. So every time we had to put fuel in the truck, it was a little conversation with the gas station attendants. They said there were cameras, people watching, so they couldn't fill up our truck. And then there would be whispers amongst, I guess, two or three of the gas station attendants. And then all of a sudden it'd be like a NASCAR stop. And they're like, come in now, <laughs> drive in real quick, fill it up exchange cash and get out of there as if the cameras couldn't see us. Yeah, they would still do it. It's like an Mission Impossible movie. It's like the camera angle changes real quick and they know (laughs) this is when you got to do it. Go, 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 go. Yeah. I I never understood what it was because it wasn't like we were giving them like a whole bunch more, more per liter when the, than the locals gave, but interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But we can't, we never had a problem. We always had, we got gas. And I think in the more populated areas, like in La Paz, they were stricter. So once mm. we got out of there, it was a little bit easier. So. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, how cool though. Any other highlights that you had from Olivia? Mm. I don't know. The whole country is great. We did, did you- a hike. It was kind of like, um, or a trek, I guess, multi-day trek that was on almost like a Olivia's Machu Picchu, I guess. It was all on stone Wow. The entire way, which was, it was raining the entire time, like really heavy raining the entire time. So it's slippery and, but yeah, it was beautiful. And it started off at a higher elevation, I think, and went down to the jungle and Mm -hmm. and back up and- that was cool. Yeah. There was a big and group of us. And treacherous, yeah. And and I remember that there are some some of those communities at the higher elevations, they don't really bury their dead. They kind of mm. 
with them no. in the open communal, like where they kind of sit grandpa up next to uncle Joe and they're all kind of hanging out there. Uh, <laughs> we had that, we had that on the cover. It was actually the most contentious cover we've ever had. Interesting. So we had, yeah, this was the turtle expedition, Gary and Monica Westcott, and they had their vehicle parked, or maybe it wasn't, the vehicle wasn't even in the photo possibly. It was just, but it was this big pile of human remains and, but that's how they bury their dead and, and it's how they, they choose to do that. And, um, yeah, a lot, a lot of people just said, I'm not, I'm unsubscribing because mm. of that. Interesting. Mm. It's a See, little different than in Canada where my mom just has the ashes of my grandparents in a gift bag on the shelf. <laughs> yeah, everybody <laughs> does it a little different. And of course, our goal is to show the uniqueness of travel, which is why we did it. But um, it was it's interesting how, how we all deal with death differently. Mm-hmm. That's part of the experience as a traveler is to begin to understand how people deal with death. Yep. And it helps maybe us learn a little bit about how to deal with our own mortality. Yep. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's really interesting to see cultures where they do that differently. Yeah. So they can go and visit them. They actually do. They go like, they're going to go hang out. I like that a lot, actually. Yeah, totally. That's so, very cool. Yeah. yeah it's, it's always a privilege to be able to go and see and experience that and yep. actually understand another culture a little bit more. Yeah. That's why we do it. Yep. Dia de los Muertos in Mexico mm-hmm. is like a whole celebration of the people that yeah. they've lost and it's just different. So yeah. they go have a picnic. It's better than repressing it. I think so. I yeah. think so. I mean, who's to say I what's better, but it, it seems like it's better for me than repressing it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. But I think that you're right. So into Chile and Argentina, which they kind of become close bedfellows for the overlander because mm-hmm. you're going over back and forth over the Andes so many different times, but they are so different. They're so unique culturally. You know, Buenos Aires feels like you're in a European city and it has, again, that great nightlife, wonderful restaurants, uh, a lot of European influence. There was a lot of Italians that moved there, a lot of Germans that moved there and other cultures that moved into Argentina throughout time. And it reflects that. Mm -hmm. It reflects uh, that really unique uh, combination of European cultures I found Mm -hmm. in in Buenos Aires. They have a love for motorsports there and a lot of other things that make it feel very European as well. And they've had their challenges financially as a country. So it's just something to be aware of when you go there. But, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just really a beautiful city. Yeah. Yeah. And and speaking of financial challenges, I think we were there the first time, first time we got there, the blue dollar was a real thing and, and worth exchanging money behind the coffee shop, exchange some US dollars, get a really good rate with the blue dollar. And we felt like the first couple of weeks in Argentina was very inexpensive. And then they got rid of that while we were gone and really got to see the difference in what inflation does because Mm -hmm. we came back and it was no longer a thing. And all of a sudden it cost us twice as much to travel through Argentina. Interesting. So So you can imagine like like talking to to the, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The people that live there, they really suffered at the hands of that hyperinflation that they experienced, but it is a massive country. Interestingly, in historical times, I mean, historical context, Argentina at one point in time was more wealthy than United States. And they have an incredible amount of diversity in landscape, which allows them to be very productive around agriculture and livestock, animal husbandry. They've been just very successful as a country in that. And you can see why when you get a lot of coastline for fishing, there's just a lot of uh, opportunity for Argentina to be really successful. And you can see a lot of that when you travel around. Mm-hmm. And we felt, I think Northern Argentina felt like a vacation when you're, 
yeah. you know, and you, you're going to the wineries and doing yeah. wine tasting. You guys did Mendoza? We did, yeah. 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 I think my teeth were purple by the time I left that. <laughs> I was supposed to go watch the Dakar Yeah. and you couldn't really get to it because Argentina is quite affluent in the grand scheme of things. So people have cars and they were all excited about the Dakar too. We could never even get close to it. So we just made like a left-hand turn and went to Mendoza and drank wine for a week and a half. I mean, I remember being able to rent, it sounds ostentatious, but we rented a villa, but it wasn't like, it was just a big, very big house. They called yeah. it a villa. And so we had three couples there and it was just so inexpensive. And then you just go do wine tours. Yeah. It's so good. We can't, we buy one wine from Santa Julia. We still buy it now. in it, Canada. Yeah. It was yeah. so good. It was only Mal- a Malbec. Yes. Yeah, it was, it was one of my $3 favorites. when we were in Argentina. It's a little bit more like, in Canada. Yeah. yeah. Malbec's a very good. affordable wine. But yeah. Mendoza's great. That was one of my, that was my first trip to South America. Started off in Santiago, went to Valparaiso, drove a 110 over the Andes into Mendoza, was going to try to find the Dakar and that didn't happen. So then just bounced around over the Andes, which was wonderful. Mm -hmm. It was incredible. It's a lot of fun down there. The Andes were particularly spectacular, I think. Like when we did, was it Mount Fitzroy? Mm. El Chelton and El Mount Chelton. Fitzroy. Yeah. Yes. And Crito Moreno Glacier and I think... Was Torres del Paine in Chile? Chile. Yeah. yeah. But all those three are pretty well known, but they're actually quite far apart from each other. It's a long distance. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I remember being on a road between Mendoza and Santiago and like there's Annapurna, just like boom, right mm. there. It's just incredible. It's like one of the seven summits. Yeah. And you just like, you can see it from the road. <sighs> it was just absolutely breathtaking. Yeah. I remember like just the silhouette of Fitzroy. Like you see it all the time in the Patagonia logo. logo. And, but we're driving, the wind's coming straight at us. I'm in third gear doing 50 kilometers an hour. And as I was fast as that truck will go <laughs> yeah, and just getting whatever, seven miles per gallon, the wind's just coming straight at us. Totally. And, but you know, when the mountains come up over the horizon and you start, and you can actually see the silhouette of them. It's just like mind blowing. It's insane. Yeah. Yeah. So did you guys go down route of 40 then in Argentina or did you come back up route of 40? We went uh, down. down. And then when you came back up, did you do any of the coastal routes like near Puerto Montt or anything like yeah, that? Yeah, we did a bunch of the Caratara Austral. On um, the way south. On the way south. Okay, got it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we came north on in Argentina on the route east side three? of the, yeah, route of three. I That's think. where we met Jeff and Monica. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah the Caratara Austral is one that I'd really like to do. And I've, I've been as far south as Concepcion, that area, and then over into Argentina. Argentina, but I really like Ruta 40. I really like those high mountain towns there. There's mm-hmm. a bunch of ski towns there as well. Uh, it kind of has this Bavarian feel yeah. up in the mountains. Barloche. Barloche, especially. Yep. Yeah. We did and, a good hike there. Yeah. Nawa Wapi. It was three days and my entire pinky toe was a blister by the time we got back. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> it was obliterated. Painful, Ouch. but worth it. Yeah. The Carretera Straw is high on my list and it's great to hear that you guys went there. I think that that's, it's kind of an, it's not super well known, but people are getting to understand that it's maybe a better option than Ruta 40, mm-hmm. especially if you want to kind of get away from the open landscape and the wind and everything else like that. Yeah. yeah they were paving some of the sections of it when we were down there. Yeah. So I think it's going to eventually, change. yeah, it'll, yeah change. it'll change. But I did find huge sections of Ruta 40 still gravel. Yep. Yeah. It's all great gravel. Yeah, it is. What I remember at least. Oh no, it's super fun, super yeah. fun. And then when you get down a little bit further south, so you guys did go see Fitzroy and all of that. And then you get into the Patagonia and then there's a kind of that bouncing in and out of Argentina and Chile again. So you go from 
Rio Gallegos, and then you've got to go across the border into Chile, which as I recall, the border crossing for both countries was in the same building. So you kind of just like, you do all your paperwork on the Argentine side and then you walk like 10 feet over to the other side and you do the rest of your paperwork. So I remember that now it was pretty, (laughs) it was pretty interesting. That was a different experience. You don't oftentimes have that. Mm -hmm. Um, And it very much felt like an outpost. And then you've got to get on a ferry to go across. Like you do get into Chile and then you've got to hop on a ferry to go through one of the straits there. I think that's the Magellan straight, isn't it? Yeah. I think you got to go through that straight of Magellan. Did we take a ferry? We did. Oh, we did. There are two different ways to get onto Tierra del Fuego, I believe. Yeah. And you can also, um, did you guys go through Puerto Arenas on the way back or on the way South? Did you skip that altogether? I think we skipped it. We did skip it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of people do, and it would be curious to get some more feedback from other travelers who've intentionally gone over there. Mm -hmm. I know some people will even ship from there too. There's a little bit more development as well. I found that that whole area was just really beautiful. And then you pop back into Argentina to get to Ushuaia, which was probably, it was one of the biggest surprises in all of my overlanding. Ushuaia is this like ethereal name. It's like you hear it and it's spoken of in like hushed tones. Yeah. Oh, you've been to Ushuaia. Are you going all the way? To Ushuaia. And then, and then you get there and it's like this huge city by comparison for being at the end of the world uh-huh. and the southernmost city in the world. It yeah, is a well-developed. It is well-developed and you can absolutely get a triple latte frappuccino. <laughs> you can get all those things there. You can buy a Patagonia jacket. You can, and the reason for a lot of that, that those affluent, you know, interfaces with tourism is because that's where the boats leave to go to Antarctica. Mm-hmm. That's where people fly into yes. to do the the cruises to Antarctica. Yeah. It was, I liked it. I totally liked it. A lot of people, oh, some totally people are it. like, we just didn't go or it was disappointing. I don't know if we just didn't have an idea of what to expect or we didn't care or we were just starting to get into, I think it was fall. And so there was like a little bit of snow dusting on the mountains and it was getting cold mm. and there was beautiful like artwork, like street totally. artwork. I don't know. It was, I thought it was really pretty. I think the people I that have it. anything negative to say about it, maybe think that the reason they're driving to Ushuaia is oh, because it's, for it's amazing. Ushuaia. Uh, Whereas for us, for most people, it's the whole experience along the way. It's not right. because Ushuaia is this utopia. It's because it's that's as far as you can go and you got to turn right around. Yeah. Right. Get out of there. Yeah, we liked it. But yeah, yeah we, we were there in September too. So there was dustings of snow and a little bit of ice on the roads that, on yeah. that pass. You got to go over oh, yeah. to drop yep. down into town. Same. Um, and that would have been in 2014. So just not much before you guys got mm-hmm. there. It was interesting because there's really good infrastructure there. A lot of people do ship back from Ushuaia. We chose to drive the vehicles all the way back to the United States from there, but it was really cool to be there and to have that experience of Ushuaia. And I would highly recommend it. I just thought, mm. I thought that it is kind of also a respite for the traveler. Mm-hmm. You can get a hotel you can have a great meal. You can rest a little bit. You can celebrate your making it to the end of the road. You can even drive a little bit further, which we did. You can drive a little bit further than there south and that, but that is certainly the southernmost city that you can find on the planet. I can't stop thinking about the mountains in the background of the city. Once you, oh, once you go a little bit yeah. farther south, mm. you have that view of the city looking north. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Super special. That was also like an area where we ran into some challenges. There was local, there was a local strike going on and protests and they were burning 
burning pallets in the road and they were blocking the road. And like, we didn't know how we were going to get out of town because there's, there's one road in and out of town and they had blocked that road off. So we actually, we actually like, like kind of feigned that we were going to go left and back into town. And then we kind of got, there's like a little bit of a dirt track and we just backed up the other side of the road <laughs> and we kind of waved to the people. And this was another one where it's kind of interesting because they, people who were striking, one of them was like visibly upset that we were trying to game the system here. And, and I just, I just said, journalista, journalista, you know, and I take my camera and all these clearly livery vehicles and everything. So they were like, yes. yeah, it was pretty interesting, but they were trying to, trying to get some consideration for what they needed, but you have to plan for those things. You have to plan for the fact that, that there could be a big strike or a protest that shuts down a road and it's you frequent. can't, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And you can't, just expect it to always be the timing that you want. So you may be stuck in town for a little bit. Yeah. We have the same thing going into Cusco. We saw the Nazca lines and we decided we were going to go about halfway up towards Cusco, camp for the night and then make the run up to Cusco the next day. But the place that we had stopped at night, which was, you know, it was was late. It was dark already. And we were tired from driving all day. We just heard from a couple of the people who were there and and they knew that that road was going to close because there was going to be a protest. I think it was about public transit or the ambulance drivers or bus drivers. It had something to do with, with transit. Yeah. No. And they said that the road to Cusco was going to close for a week. So you either go now because you have until five o'clock the next morning or you don't go for a week. So pack up the truck, middle of the night, pouring rain, <laughs> just drive another eight hours or whatever, whatever it was. And we arrived at seven, three or four in the morning and just outside of a campground through the tent open, fell asleep. Yeah. But you know, you just have to roll with the punches and we just made a decision. We were either going to wait here at some random place in the jungle or yeah. keep going. I'm glad that we kept going, but I'm also glad that that road was really, really well lit and well paved. Yeah. Lots of reflectors. <laughs> we were lucky. This content is brought to you by Overland Journal, our premium quality print publication. The magazine was founded in 2006 with the goal of providing independent equipment and vehicle reviews along with the most stunning adventures and photography. We care deeply about the countries and cultures we visit and share our experiences freely with our readers. We also have zero advertorial policy and do not accept any advertiser compensation for our reviews. By subscribing to Overland Journal, you're helping to support our employee-owned and veteran-owned publication. Your support also provides resources and funding for content like you are watching or listening to right now. You can subscribe directly on our website at overlandjournal.com. I mean, there's livestock and drunks and everything else that wander into the road, which yep. can be pretty terrifying. Exactly. Yeah, people always worry about the banditos and stuff. And Mm-mm. like, no, it's the donkey. It's gonna, it's a donkey <laughs> the, that's going to end your day. Pull yeah. On, like, yeah, totally. Yeah, you just yeah. can't see them. Yeah, I remember we were one spot in Nicaragua. And again, same thing, went out to this one peninsula we wanted to camp at. We got there. It felt like there had been a music festival there for the last week and it's been over for three days. But the people who are, it was just a handful of people left that didn't didn't feel quite right. So we decided to turn around, even though it's pitch black, turn around and it was really, really dark. So I turn on the driving lights and then it's cattle on the side of the road and kids 
and I couldn't see them with the headlights. Yep. And so it's always, it's that sort of thing you have to worry about when you're driving at night. Yeah. We need to trust our gut. There's times when we know that like we need to move. And even if it's the middle of the night, you need to trust that. Mm-hmm. And we need to trust our travel partners. I, th- I always mm-hmm. recommend that when you're traveling with someone else, part of it is honoring what they're feeling because yeah. you already know who they are. Typically, it's, it's rare that you travel with a total stranger. So if either person feels uncomfortable about a situation and maybe you guys even have a phrase or a word that you use to identify that this is not a comfortable spot, uh, then there's no discussion. You can talk mm-hmm. about it later. Like, what were you feeling? and what could we have done different? But in the moment, you just trust the judgment and the insights and maybe the the prickle on the back of their neck that came up around that situation. You just kind of honor it and you move on. But for the most part, South America is, is extremely safe. 100%. And we it felt uh, like that. Yeah, it really did. And there's lots of wild camping and there's, and like the Argentines love camping. So there's lots of campgrounds in Argentina. You'll see lots of RVs on the road. Uh, Argentines traveling around the road trip for them is a big deal. There's of course so much more of South America that we didn't talk about. I spent a little bit of time in Uruguay and really enjoyed it, but I haven't explored it extensively. I've not been to Paraguay and that's supposed to be fantastic. Mm -hmm. Did you guys go there? No. We probably should get someone on the podcast that has spent time in Uruguay, Paraguay, and Brazil because Brazil is the vast majority of the continent. It's huge. And there's a bunch that I would love to go see at some point in time. So it'd be great for those that are listening. If you got somebody you recommend for having a chat around Uruguay, Paraguay, Brazil, and maybe even the Guyanas and Suriname, that would be really interesting to do that. There's been travelers that of course spent a lot of time there. So that would be mm-hmm. really fun to talk about that in the Amazon and everything else. So any other thoughts that you guys have around like recommendations, tips, ideas, maybe books that you've read that you really enjoyed around South America? Um, I think it's important to remember just the sheer size of it. You know, we talked to a lot of other travelers that are like, we're going to do it, or they said they were going to do it in a specific period of time. And then they realized like how big it is. Yeah. And they were like, never mind. We're going to have to change our plan or, or not. But yeah, it's just important to realize the size of it. Yeah. We spent a year there and it did not feel like we were rushing or taking our time. It was kind of a good, for us, it worked out pretty well. But I feel like if we, I, I had the opportunity to go back a few months after we returned home, but the trip was going to be done in 12 weeks. Yeah. And I thought that I didn't want to change our experience that we had and with a rush trip through. Sure. Yeah. I can't think of books, but there were two short films I really enjoyed. And one was The Last Ice Merchant. And it was about mm. the, there was a man who collects ice on the Chimborazo volcano in Ecuador and just it highlighted his life and why he's collecting ice and he's the last ice merchant. So it was really cool. And then there is another one, I think it's called Cholitas and it's about this group of Cholitas in, uh, I think it's Bolivia and they are some of, I believe the first to summit the highest mountain in Bolivia. I I hope that's right. Yeah. I saw that one too, a few years ago and that was really, really cool. And they have the traditional, these big skirts. And uh, I think it's, it's a bit unusual to have a group of uh, local women summiting down there. So that documentary was uh, pretty cool. And I think there's also a great documentary from Yvonne Chouinard of his travels down there by sailboat and by van. He's the founder of Patagonia. That's another really kind of neat, inspiring adventure yarn. 
and movie. There's a lot to do down there. If you're into rock climbing, there's a lot to do. If you're if you're into whitewater rafting, there's a lot to do. If you're into mountaineering, there's a lot to do. If you're into overlanding, obviously there's a lot to do. Skiing. Uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You can go skiing when you're down there. I think it's equally beneficial to do the trip by four wheel drive or by motorcycle. I don't think it really lends itself better towards one than the other. You could do it in two wheel drive, yeah. to be honest. Yeah, yeah you could. Yeah. yeah. The whole route is paved if you take the Pan American uh, or gravel, uh, but it would still be totally suitable for a, a two-wheel drive in good conditions. Um, yeah. But if you do have a four-wheel drive, it's just like the same as here. It allows you to get just a little further off the beaten path, mm-hmm. uh, which gives you a little bit more of a remote experience if that's what you're looking for. And some of those are the are those experiences that we remember the most are, are those ones that we went to because we were confident enough that we could get in yeah. and out. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. And I would just highly recommend those that are listening to do some more research on South America consider it as part of your overland travels. It's certainly become the most popular international destination that we've seen in recent years uh, because the Silk Road's become a little bit more challenging and Africa's become a little bit more challenging. So we're seeing the last 10 years, we're seeing just a lot more travels to South America and understandably so. Uh, And I think it can take that volume of travelers too. It's a big place. You get a bump into lots of cool people along the way, uh, but it's just, it's one of the most stunning places on the planet. For sure. And you can do the trip however you want because you can you can drive from hotel to hotel or you can drive to hostel to hostel or campground to campground or yep. just wild camp the entire time. Whatever mix of in between that you want to do. I think that's why it makes it so good for some like a beginner, somebody who doesn't have a lot of experience is you can just take little baby steps, learn all along the way. So the majority of the route, once you enter Mexico, all the way through Central America. So finishing off North America and Mexico, all the way through Central America and the whole route that you guys did through South America, it's all one language. So you can interact with them in Spanish. And since English and Spanish are both Latin derived languages, there's a lot of crossover and there's a lot of English speakers in those countries as well. So I never found language to be a limitation, maybe incorporate some immersion into your travels. So that way you can really communicate to the locals as much as possible, but I could learn a lot of Spanish by the time you get to Ushuaia. For sure. Did yeah. you guys find that? Did you guys find that you picked up a lot of Spanish by the time you got I there? think we did. We also, I think by the end, like when we were in Buenos Aires, we rented a, an apartment there for, what was it, a month or something while we were mm-hmm. waiting for shipping. And uh, we actually felt like our Spanish had gotten worse there. Huh. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It just felt like we didn't understand anything in Argentina. But I think also, like you were saying, the immersion is a huge part. Yeah. We learned so much just seeing signs on the highway or going to a store and reading things or having to learn certain vehicle parts or like, you know, tire shop or. Who would escape? Yeah. yeah. Exhaust, exhaust pipe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We knew that one really well. Yeah. I think our Spanish was good. It could have been better. But. Definitely could have been better. We knew nothing. We knew no Spanish whatsoever when we crossed into Mexico. Probably the biggest regret of mm-hmm. that trip was not learning more. But to be honest, we learned really quickly along the way. We did some some classes in Guanajuato and in, uh, where was the other Guatemala one? Guatemala and Lake Atitlan. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that was really great. And we actually know more Spanish than we think we do after we went to Saudi and we understand literally four words of Arabic. Oh, yeah, yes. sure. You can see how far you've come, I guess. No doubt. <laughs> and I feel with the, with everywhere we went in Mexico, Central and South America, just taking a little bit of extra time and not rushing through a conversation. Even if you go to the coffee shop and they ask if you want the coffee for here or to go, the first couple of times I'm like, yeah, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Throw my thumb out and point in the direction I want to go so they know that I want to leave. And then eventually asking, okay, what did you ask 
and how do I respond Yeah, and taking that time. And then you just do that once and you, and you learn that already and you can yeah. move on to the next phrase. And context yeah. makes so much because you're ordering a coffee. You're yep. there in the coffee shop yep. and you're trying to order a coffee, which fortunately it's still cappuccino down there, but yeah. like, <laughs> you know, it doesn't change, but they, they may ask you something else in Spanish and you can, yeah, that context adds so much to it. Your guys's blog is a great resource for those that are traveling to South America. You guys have done some really great work around the total cost of your trip. Do you remember how much that year was? I'm sure you still kind of have that number in your mind. Give people some perspective around traveling in a 22 RE Toyota truck around South America for the year. Yeah. On average, our our average daily rate was about 70 to $75 a day, including shipping, fuel, food, maintenance, camping, everything included in that trip was about $75 a day. Yeah. So US, that's a good way to plan. US, yeah. That's a good way to plan. Yeah. As opposed to when we're in the States or Canada, it's close to 150. Sure. If I'm doing any sort of distance whatsoever. Sure. Yeah. Especially now with fuel prices. So exactly be a lot more expensive. So there's some great information on destaglory.com, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. You can reach destaglory on Instagram as well, or destaglory ash on Instagram. Yeah, it's destaglory underscore ash. Underscore ash. <laughs> <laughs> or you can reach me at scott.a.brady on Instagram as well. If you've got some questions or some comments or some additional insights that we should cover uh, when we go through Brazil and Uruguay and Paraguay and even some of the Guyanas as well, please reach out to us. Give us some feedback. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is going to be a new series that we're going to make sure we cover through principles of overlanding. We talk about individual continents as well. And then we'll probably have some kind of a destination series where we talk about individual countries in more detail um, as well. But this has really been fun guys. It's brought me down memory lane and a couple of places. I'm like, hmm, I forgot the name of that. Same. Us too. Yeah. We always love talking about our trip because it brings us back to the glory days yeah. of Dest to Glory. Yeah. So thank you for uh, allowing us to do that. No, we thank you both for being on the podcast and for being a part of Overland International. And for all that are listening, we appreciate your support and listening to the Overland Journal podcast. And we will talk to you next time. Bye.